You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Our focal passage today is John 7:53 through 8, 1 through 11. It will be on the screens. We invite you to turn there if you have hard copies or physical Bibles in your hands. I'll give you just a moment, and then I will read that for us. John 7, 53 through 8, 1 through 11 says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. You can now have a seat, and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Everyone can have a seat but me, I guess. Hey, all, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastor's... Here, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Man, I, I know you probably come here in lots of different ways and tired and busy stuff and excited about nice weather and all those things. And sometimes your mind can be elsewhere or just whatever. And so I just want to say, one, I, I feel you in that. And sometimes this is hard. It's been like a super full week and a super full weekend. And so I want to pray for me. Uh, I ask you to do the same uh, and then I, I want to pray for us together because, like, thanks for, thanks for sacrificing whatever you put off to be here today. Um, I, I think God would consider this uh, a worthy cause. So would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the gift of these people, of the songs, um, of music, of babies crying, arguments in the car on the way here. Um, late nights, early mornings, um, to and fro, and in all the places that our minds and our hearts and, and our bodies have to go, and yet for just a few minutes today, we invite ourselves to sit under your word, and so would you just let your word shine bright, not mine? Would you let us hear uh, you? Would you show us that you you do confront our sin, and, and you want that gone from our lives, but you also conform our hearts. So today, would you let us uh, delight in that truth? Um, we invite you to, to shine bright your light into all the dark places of our life, and would you let us bring those to you so that you might make us new in all things. 
We love you in Jesus' name. People have struggled to find that sweet spot of, of kind of balance for how to interact with sin. And that's true for the sin of others, and it's true for our own selves as well. And you might say, well, that's crazy. Like, that's a, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and I get that. Like, in some way, it seems black and white. And in other ways, it, it gets gray real quick, and, and it gets kind of difficult. So, so those who don't acknowledge God, they live uh, a way of, of themselves as if God isn't. Um, what the Bible says is that they heap judgment upon themselves by the life that they live and by disregarding God altogether. They write their own rules on how to live and how to love and how to relate and, and what's right and what's wrong. And, and the thing about that, the, the thing about the, the world outside of God's rule is that um, it, it doesn't have fixed values, it, it can't have fixed values because there's no authority to write those values. Um, there isn't a book or there isn't a rule of faith to guide the world. And so that's why you have generations condemning the generation prior. And, and even decades, you, you have things happen that were totally acceptable by anyone. And then you fast forward five years and, and you say, well, that's, that's because you just, you draw lines until there's nowhere to stand left. And so that's what the world does. But for those who do acknowledge God, uh, we're in a different place. We, we have his rule and his reign. And, and when we acknowledge his way as the best way, we still struggle to figure things out and how we relate to sin, to God, to ourself, and to others. As a quick little preface, and this isn't like a technical definition, it's just me throwing some stuff at you. Like, you might be saying, well, what is sin? Because that's pretty important. Sin is living as if God isn't. Like, that's a good place to start. Sin is living as if God isn't. It's living apart from the way that God invites us to live. It's, it's quite literally to miss the mark of God's declared goodness for all of his creation. Uh, sin is crimes of head, heart, and hand against God's rule. Now, I think I probably covered a lot of things in there, I hope. Um, the, the, the drunken man on a horse, he sways left to right, right? He staggers along and then he might sit up and he goes the other way and he sways back and forth. And, um, and, and Christians relate to sin in similar ways. They go hard left and they might sit up and, and maybe they have a sober moment and then they go hard right and then they just kind of slouch back and forth or wherever they might go. And so there are kind of two uh, ditches or pillars on either side of us that we get to, maybe that, that might be helpful. There's the, the hermit monk who relates to sin in a certain way, who relates to the world in a certain way. He moves away from evil. He moves away from the evil world around him, and, and he might plan to live in a cave, reading, meditating, praying, and worshiping God alone for the rest of his life. And you know that there have been many who have done that. Well, they do that alone until others decide that what they did was a good idea. And then they go join them alone together in the cave, reading and praying and all the things. And that's how you get like monasteries and stuff like that. So that's how that stuff has happened. So that's one way to kind of uh, consider ourselves in relation to sin. Maybe a more modern way to think about this. One notable tele-evangelist, he said some crazy stuff. He said this, he says, you can't talk to God while flying commercial, okay? You can't talk to God while you're with a bunch of commoners in an airplane. 
You can't talk to God there. And it agitated him that, that when he was in that environment, he faced unsolicited prayer requests from people around him. He says, you can't manage that today. In, and this is a quote. In this dope-filled world, get in a long tube with a bunch of demons. Okay? Or a cave. Or whatever. But you, you see where that comes from. And, and that's why he, he, uh, he, he used that line to support why it's a, quote, biblical thing that his church needed to, and, and they did, buy him a $54 million private jet to do God's work around the world, right? That's being other-oriented, but not in the right way. You're very mindful of others, okay? Um, the other side of that is, is we minimize sin so much that we couldn't find it at Woodstock, right? And, and, and we do that, we're, we're not only aware of, of the way that the culture lives outside of us, that we can't see, hey, that's not okay, but, but we also can't tell when sin is at work within us. And so, kind of, you, you put those two fences in, in a thousand in between it, it, it plays out a thousand ways, and a few of those would be things that we probably live in, excessive guilt for personal sin. So when we sin, we, we maybe, maybe you don't, all right? and, and there is a type of person that just bears tremendous guilt for personal sin. They're very aware of it. And, and, and the question is, well, how could I possibly please God? There's no way. Like, I messed up again. I did the thing again. And so it's downcast. It's, it's guilt, shame, condemnation. That's not only what I did, but that's who I am. How could God ever love me? And you know who you are if you live that way. And, and the other side of that is extreme judgment against others. And it's not very aware at all of your, of your personal sin, but it's we aim to make Jesus known by what we are against more than who is for us. We know that guy. We know that woman. Do I, you might be that guy or you might be that woman. But, but the Holy Spirit desires to confront and conform today. So we get to look inside. And another way it might show up is just the liberalism by just disregarding God altogether. And we become, as the Bible says, a law unto ourselves. But, and, and again, there's a thousand ways to slice all those things. And it doesn't have to be so confusing. We don't have to live in those, those difficult things. And, and I think this text can help us, right? And, and the big thing that we're getting at is this, the way we relate to our own sin shapes the way, we, uh, the way we relate to the sin of others. The way that we relate to our own sin shapes the way that we relate to the sin of others. And I, I do want to give a quick caveat. Uh, in your Bible, if you have one of those, you should, and you should bring it with you, right? Even the kind with paper, that's totally cool too. Um, so if you open that up, probably at the top somewhere, it probably says something in brackets, something like uh, this, this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts. And you might be like, huh, okay. Uh, this week, so that I don't have to talk for 15 minutes about uh, stuff that will bore some of you to tears. Uh, this week we recorded a podcast to kind of engage all that stuff. And so on the same feeds that we normally, that this sermon will be on, uh, 
this, it's, it's already out. We shouted out at the end of last week. So you can go listen to that. Even today, you can listen to that or, or whatever throughout the same channels. I think we shout out on social media and all that stuff. And so we kind of explain where that comes from, why we can still trust the Bible and all those things. But, but essentially, the question was, is, was this in, in the original manuscript? Was it added later? Is it legitimate? And so there's this idea, something called textual criticism, where scholars go after and try to figure out if, if this is uh, uniquely the Word of God or it isn't, or how we got the text itself and other books as well. And so uh, just a few kind of summary thoughts I want to give you. One, uh, overwhelming consensus of the textual critics would say that this is not part of the original Gospel of John because it didn't show up until later. Um, and so, or at least it didn't happen here, but, but it's been placed in other places, in Luke at times, in other parts of John. And so, and then yet the, the overwhelming consensus of textual critics is that it is authentic, that it is apostolic, that is that it was written by an apostle and it should be contained, which is why your Bible doesn't just cut that part out and disregard it. And so there's a whole lot more to that, but I'll, I'll give you two little quick other things. Uh, the church confesses the inspiration of the spirit in the original written form of God's word, but not in the way that that has been uh, copied uh, along the years at, that, that followed. And so what, what that means is uh, the, the original manuscripts were God's word, and since then, there, there might be a, a slight margin of error, but the beauty of that is there are uh, over 5,000 copies of essentially all of God's word. And so you might say, well, man, that, that leaves lots of room for people to kind of have their way and do their thing, but it, but it actually doesn't. And that, that's the thing that we stand on that actually makes it much more credible. And so the original letters were passed out to local churches so that they, they might be read aloud and that they might figure out what it looks like to know truth. And then in those local churches, they would have people copyists. They would have people copy to the best of their ability and, and very meticulously. And so most everything is, is very, very similar, although there are a couple things like this passage that there's a little bit of concern about. I'll close that little section out, little caveat with a quote. Should one blow up the National Institute of Standards and Tech in Washington and destroy our official yardstick? That's where it's at. I know you guys were wondering. Do you suppose there would be enough copies to allow us to reconstruct with a certain measure of accuracy? I, I think there would be. Also, uh, someone else said this. If we had the originals, we would probably worship those and sell tickets to see them. So there you have it, right? Listen to that podcast. It fills in a whole lot more gaps. So we're kind of walking through this text. The first thing that we see is this. We get to focus on the sin. Uh, I'm sorry, we don't get to. Focus on the sin of others hardens the heart. Focus on the sin of others hardens the heart. I want to start reading in 8 uh, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. We'll talk about that in just a second. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him. 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right? The thing of it is at this point, Jesus, he bent down and wrote uh, with his finger on the ground. The scribes and Pharisees, they're not getting along with Jesus very much. Focus on the sin of others hardens the heart. Because of the access that we all have to everyone and everything, every moment of the day, there are people who consider themselves watchdogs or even like church watchdogs. And so these people, they, they troll pastors and they troll churches and Christians and they find inconsistencies or maybe they, they find sin usually from far off, not from, uh, not from up close, and they make it their personal mission to spotlight failure. You may know the type. Um, they may tweet at or blog about or shine light on the failure. That's kind of like what they do. And it's kind of like their shtick and then they try to garner followers just by pointing out the sin of others. And, and that's a, a bit of a, a dangerous game, but it's a tale as old as time. Someone finds a person to, to kind of set eyes on, and what boils up inside of them is the at-all-cost pursuit to take them down. It's the classic kind of story motif of being consumed by hatred. And usually it starts off maybe with good intentions, and you see somebody doing something wrong, but then you become so consumed by, by hatred and vengeance that you begin doing the things that you're trying to get others to stop doing. But here's the thing. All that stuff, it isn't all bad. That, that's not all bad. There's opportunity to learn and there's opportunity to know of bad leaders and, and, and bad churches who live unhealthy, if not sinful, patterns of manipulation and scandal and pride and abuse. And so for us, publicly right now, there was a podcast that came out, and we've re referenced a few times, but The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it spotlights, man, like a really difficult thing about a particular leader in a particular church not so long ago. It's just a, it's a lot to take in. And so the, the reality is there are different things going on inside of different people. And the way that we, we respond to that really matters. There's a, a Netflix documentary right now, and it's basically, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's Hillsong, whatever, the, the rise and fall of Hillsong. That's not what it is. But, but and so like that's very, like very uh, timely. I think things are like changing with that story in the last three months. So Hillsong is international influential church uh, of all kinds of, of uh, they're widely known. They have a ton of influence. So the way that we consume that material, if it's like, oh man, I can't wait to get my popcorn and just watch it. That is not a good posture of heart. Now you might say, oh, those people are what, like, and I might say that as well. But, but we have to be mindful what's going on inside of us when we're taking in that type of information. Because that information is everywhere. Not only do we have to make sure that it's credible, but, but we also get to figure out what's going on inside of us. Some things need to be brought into the open. The Bible exposes names of those who preach false doctrine. The Bible exposes names of people who are uh, divisive within local church congregations. Like, read your Bible, right? How would you like to be like, oh, gosh, like, what's your family tradition? Man, I have someone in my family, like, is actually written about in Scripture. Like, they tried to split the church at Corinth. That's not okay, and yet, there, there are real names. And so, I'm not saying that, that, 
What I'm saying is it's, it's difficult. It's not black and white in how we respond to this type of thing. To be fair, it is never appropriate to cover up abuse, and abuse within the church is, is always going to serve people in the kingdom better when it's brought to light. So there's no, this idea of covering up stuff it's a no-go. If you're in an office, mine or anyone else's, and they invite you to sign up, just run far, just the police station's one block away, just run to them, have them arrest me and everyone else involved. Like, you can see how people get there. Well, if, gosh, this person, not me, but someone with like real influence in the world, right? If, if someone finds out about what they're doing, then, man, that's gonna tarnish God's reputation. That's a lie. Right? And, and it might be true by their actions, but what we get to do is we get to shine light on, on inappropriate abuse and all those things. And so, But here's the thing. The way that people respond to those documentaries, podcasts, blogs, whatever, the, the extreme differences in the way that people respond to much of those things, it, it proves the point. Like I probably had conversations with some of you about some of these things and more, and maybe you have, and you think that everyone would just kind of position their heart in a similar way, but, but they don't. It's wildly different. And some people are all, all for it, and oh man, this is going to breed a culture of witch hunting, and everybody's going to, or, or maybe the other side of it's like, ah, but they did such great things, and, and, and maybe the other side is like, man, I, popcorn and watching them burn. And so that the fact that people respond so differently is, is proving the point. But here's the thing. There is danger in making the sin of others a spectacle for personal gain, for manipulation. We have in us a tendency to exaggerate the sin of others and minimize our own sin. That's what we see here, and that's what we see here, and that's what we see around us, and it's a dangerous trap. You don't have to host a podcast or, or produce a, a Netflix documentary to fall into a trap of making spectacle of the sin of others. It can happen in your own home, in your own work, in your own neighborhood, in your own church, because it happens inside of the heart of humanity. When we fix our gaze on others, the, the trap is set. We put blinders on and we can look for truth and lie and loophole that, that floods others to avoid exposing our own lives, our own actions, our own hearts, our own sin. When we, when we target the sin of others, our hearts are ripe for hardening, for growing ice cold, for, for growing calluses, not for pursuing repentant community, not like observing your, your bro in community or your neighbor in, in sin in a way that's, that's harmful and, and wanting to, to lead them to restoration, seeking restoration or hope and new life, but, but our hearts are willing to expose others so we might have some leverage for gain. Maybe it's to make us look good or to make them look bad, but the motive is, is wicked regardless. And so the people who are doing that in this passage, they're called the scribes and the Pharisees. And just kind of a, a little teaching point, the, the scribes and, and Pharisees are often lumped together, but they're not the same people. The scribes, they were uh, Jewish lawyers, they were Jewish theologians, and they were experts in interpreting the Old Testament. That's what they did. And it was their career, it was their job. So they were lawyers of basically the, the Jewish Old Testament. 
That's what they did. Now, the Pharisees, they were a, a party, more like a political party or, or a party, a movement of conservative religious practice. Like, we can't even comprehend what that might be like today. It's a joke. It's <laughs> good. Oh, it's so good. Okay. They were, they were called the separated ones. That's what they were called. Right? And so we might know the type. Uh, one, one says it this way. During the intertestamental period, that is the, the gap between the obedience to the law, so, they, so these even kind of together, but certainly the Pharisees were a group of committed, uh, they were committed to spiritual, moral, theological reform. They banded to purify Jewish community. They were Puritans of ancient Israel. So not all scribes were Pharisees, not all Pharisees were scribes, but do you kind of get the type of people they were? They were much more concerned with what others were doing and much less concerned with what was happening inside of their own heart. So the accusation is they, they bring this woman to Jesus and they say she is, she's got caught up in adultery. Like, what do we do? What are we going to do? So you might be saying, well, what is adultery? And that's a great question. You should ask that question. Moses did indeed outlaw adultery. And, and as God was uh, collecting and preparing and preserving his covenant community, God's people, which grew into the nation of Israel, he gave them laws to govern and, and to, to make them a people that were after God's heart, that reflected his character. And so they were, they were making a committed people, committed to one another, committed to the Lord. And so adultery is sexual relations between two people, at least one who was married to a different person. The penalty for that was death. You might say, well, that is a lot to handle. I would say it, it really is. That's a lot to handle. And I, I think that probably says something about us in the way that we think of sin. And when we read passages that tell us that, that sin, when it's full grown, it leads to death. And we say, yeah, yeah, it's okay. death. Okay. And, and if we think of sin that way, it's like adultery. But I mean, like, gosh, like she shouldn't have to die for that. And where's the he? And we'll get to that in a second. But, but I think when we think of sin's work that way, it greatly diminishes what Jesus did on the cross. That he died for us. And we say, yeah, yeah, he died for us. And we also say, yeah, but our sin shouldn't lead to death. And at some point, you create for yourself a theological plot hole. However, if one was engaged to be married, but they were not yet married, and, and they did this thing, they were unfaithful with another, um, that was also considered adultery, but stoning was the penalty. So the penalty for, for a married person committing adultery was death, but not by stoning, but, but somebody who wasn't married. And so that's kind of a bit of an indicator that maybe she was not married in one way or the other. Um, lest we assume... Sex is set aside for the beauty of marriage. Like, 
Like, that, that's not something in the world that we live in that I can just, well, I assume that you know that. Because we can assume maybe that, that we don't know that because of the world that we live in. One man, one woman committed to one another to become one in the most intimate relationship that God has for all humans. It represents Christ's devotion to his bride, the church. So it's pretty significant. This is God's good design, and we fight against sexual activity in all, in, in, in all kinds of ways. There was a time in the life of the early covenant community of God's people where death was the result of this type of sin, and that's super heavy. But, but sex positive as a way of life outside of marriage is not something that brings freedom. That's a lie. It's not something that leads to the fullness of life. That's a lie. But it heaps judgment, and it brings death, and it promises love, but it only breaks your first love. So they use this woman. They use, they use her. Public brings lots of questions what are, they, what are they trying to do? Not because they care about her, not because they care about the purity of God's community, but to catch Jesus. So she's not even, she's not even the one that they're, they're mindful of. They do this to catch Jesus. She's just a victim that they, they would just assume toss her aside to get Jesus caught up in this web, this trap that they're laying for him. So here was the the decision that Jesus had to make. Uphold Moses and stone her. Well, let's do it. If, if this is true, then, then let's stone her. But the problem with that was that went against the, the Roman authorities. And so if Jesus said, all right, let's stone her, you know what they would have done? They would have, they would have ran straight to the police station and they would have said, hey, we got somebody, check this out, we got video. Look, you see him saying it? You see him? They didn't have video, it's a joke. But you, you get the idea. They would have said, like, look, he did it. Go get him. And so he would, be, he would be caught up by the Roman authorities. Or on the flip of that, Jesus rejects Moses. Not the best thing for his, his uh, public life either. Rejects Moses, and then they report to the Jewish leaders, and they deem him a heretic and would probably kill him that way as well. It's a pretty well-crafted trap. It's a, it's a lose-lose. It's a, it's a clever trap. The point, it's, it's not always bad to show others their sin, right? That, that is not the case. We're even called to do that, but when our motives for doing so are less than repentance and restoration and, and the building up of the church, when we, when we focus on the sin of others as the target of our gaze, our hearts inflate our own goodness and they harden towards others. We forget grace. We become bloodthirsty, vengeful, demeaning manipulators with, with hardened hearts towards grace and towards others. Even in the name of seeking purity, we can do harm. The second thing, focus on your own sin softens the heart. Verse 7 and 8. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. It's kind of cool. I mean, it would be like maybe marker board equivalent. He's like, 
in a temple room and he's teaching in front of the marker board, like in the huddle room, and they approach him with this. But, but it's cooler because he's just writing in the dirt, right? Um, this is the only mention in scripture of Jesus writing anything. It's kind of interesting. We know that he was literate, so he, he could write, but he didn't write uh, this. Uh, one theologian said this, we know he was literate, but he didn't write in autobiography, epistles, or, a, or treatises in theology or, or religion. When he chose to write on this occasion, he wrote like a quarterback in a sandlot football game drawing the play in the dirt. The burning question is, what did he write? What was he writing? And I'm here to tell you. I, no, nobody knows. <laughs> That's what it was. Scholars have speculated all kinds of things, and I wormhole lots of them, right? But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter. Like one theory that you commonly hear preached, like this is what he's probably doing. Uh, he was probably writing, maybe even in front of them, the, the sin that each of these men had committed. And, and so in front of one of them, uh, embezzler, oh, that's me, you know, and the other murderer and fornicator and adulterer as each man left. But here's the thing, that, that's a great story. That, that would be really awesome if he did that. But don't go telling people that because we have no idea. It just, it says he wrote in the dirt. So we get to leave it that way. No matter what he wrote, there seems to have taken a shift in the heart of these people. They were accusers 10 seconds ago, and now they're aware of their own sin enough to be less concerned with the woman and with Jesus' response and more concerned with their own guilt so much that they just walk away. And maybe they say, gosh, he's just not falling for it. Guys, let's get out, let's get out of here. That's probably what they said. When Jesus said, he without sin throw the first stone, he was not destroying the judicial system of God's law. He's not tearing down Moses. He was speaking to people who were hypocritically bloodthirsty in their desire to shame and punish a person who had fallen. And, and in this, the, the way the law was written, the accusers literally had to throw the first stone. It's like some very immediate retribution victim to accuser. When we are confronted with the very present reality of our own sin, and again, we don't know what led them to this, but what Jesus is saying, hey, you who have no sin, you're up. And maybe they take that and they say, I'm out, you know what, I'm out of here. Whatever it was, when we are confronted with, with the reality of our own sin, our hearts are softened towards others. We are wrung out of self-righteousness. And my guess is that if you find Christians, you find people who walk with Jesus, and, and you see them talking, spending more time trying to curb the behavior of the people around them, and don't kids, don't be like, that's you, mom, right? That's different, Okay. If you ask them questions about what they believe true about the others, you would probably find that they hang their hat on their own obedience to please God. And Jesus is a side note in their walk with the Lord. This is the way that grace shapes the lives of, of God's people in community with others. Man, you know, many of you all were at a wedding 
uh, this past weekend, and you know, I got to sit with that couple for months, kind of talking about marriage and all that stuff. And and this is the type of thing that we talk about in that kind of premarital counsel and all that stuff. It's it's the awareness of your own sin that gives perspective to actually let love cover a multitude of sin. It's to the extent that you're aware of your own personal need for grace is the extent that you're going to be able to give grace to others. And that is true in marriage, and that's true in any other relationship. The extent that you know that, uh, that grace abounds in your life, the extent that you look at the mirror and you say, gosh, I missed, I failed, I didn't, I didn't trust God in his ways, I didn't do whatever it is, I didn't even acknowledge him in, in what I was doing in that moment. The extent that you're able to do that and you see God's love for you all the more is, is the extent that you're going to be able to live lives with other people around you, offering grace at every turn. It is vulnerability in community that's willing to confess our own sin that builds a community that's, that's formed by the gospel and a people willing to, to lean into love, broken people, knowing that we are all broken people. So this idea of Christianity being, being something where you could stand before people and say, I'm good enough, and I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to tell you how to be good enough. That's just not even a thing when we sit under the, the true word of God. The way we relate to our own sin shapes the way we relate to the sin of others. The last thing we see that, that helps us get that is focus on Jesus confronts and conforms the heart. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Here we get to the tension for us. How do we relate to sin? And what we see is Jesus moves toward the sin of both the accuser and the accused. He, he, he leans in on both accounts, and so we have a couple options. We can let it go. Just let it go. Hey, it's fine. I, you did that. It's fine. We can just, just, just let it go. We serve a, a universalist God who doesn't uphold justice. He doesn't hold people accountable to their sin. And, and, but, but he does have a, a, a big, merciful, gracious heart so long as you're not the victim because then justice doesn't have its way. Let love abound. Just minimize the sin. Do whatever feels right in the light of your own truth. We can, we can land there or we can, we can start throwing stones. That seems to be the tension so that judgment and justice has its day. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't waffle. He's not confused. Hmm. Like maybe like one, one, uh, one commentator said maybe he was like buying time. <laughs> He's like riding in the sand like hmm. It's a really good thought. Hmm. Like, which, that's probably what I would do. I would just, I'll speak to you in a second. Let me just think for a moment, right? 
That's what I would do. And I would say, here's what we're going to do, right? And so uh, we can let it go or we can start throwing stones. But he, Jesus is not indifferent. He's not waffling. He's not, uh, do I please the, the Jewish courts or the Roman courts? I wonder what, uh, let me look. I wonder what the fines are. For, he's not doing that. He sided with Moses. He gave his verdict. She's guilty. And, and she should be stoned. But her executioners missed the mark. And only Jesus met the qualifications for carrying out the execution. Where are your accusers? Who can condemn? Woman, where did everyone go? You must be having a really bad day. So, so, so show me the people that are, that are wanting to take you to court. Jesus forgives her sin without the presence of a husband, a wife, the other adulterer, a jury of her peers. There's no local news crew. And she says, no one Lord. Now we don't know if that's just a common like Lord as if she would call like an, another man or if it's no one Lord. It's the divine name of Jesus. Like we don't know what's going on inside of her heart and you can speculate all day long and we don't have more information. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, Jesus said to her the sweetest words any human could ever hear from his lips. Neither do I condemn you. He went on, he said, if you can't relate to these words, then your heart has been hardened. And I would maybe even add, when you hear those words, who comes to mind, what group or what person comes to mind that you would say, yeah, that's true, but, like, yeah, but, yeah, he, he forgives it, but, like, that, but my neighbor, the, like, that's how you sift your heart. Who do you think that this doesn't apply to? If you can't relate to these words, then your heart has been hardened. Because each one of us comes to God like this woman. Guilty, ashamed, naked, exposed. But Christ clothes us with the cloak of his righteousness. Covering our nakedness and shame. And he says to us, neither do I condemn you. That's gold. That's the way of life. That's the way of the fullness of life. He lets her off the hook, but not without penalty and not without punishment for her sin and not without justice. Hear this. He lets her off the hook as the only one who can take her guilt, the only one who can take her shame, the only one who can take her sin, her penalty for sin upon himself and die in her place. Jesus alone can forgive her because Jesus alone can acquit her on the basis of taking the judgment and penalty for her sin. Everyone else deserves the same penalty. Everyone. Not him. The crime was committed. Jesus can forgive her because he knows, Father, would you make note of this one so that when I'm hanging on the cross, this one's covered, that I, I'm paying the tab for this one. And that's for all of us every time we rebel against God. In the smallest ways, in the largest ways, this rings true. And so you say, well, now what? And we don't have time to get into it, but 
in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul asked the same question when he's, he's preaching grace, and he says, yeah, but I know what you're saying. Now what? Now that grace has abounded, should we, should we sin still more so that grace might abound even more? No, that's stupid. No, don't do that. No, go sin no more. Remember, grace isn't free. It's only free for those who behold Jesus. It was not free for him. It came at a great cost. Go and sin no more holds her accountable and yet forgiven. Her forgiveness isn't a reason to continue sinning. Her forgiveness is the reason she gets to go and sin no more. She has a new heart. Well, I don't know what she does. But we have the opportunity for a new heart, a new life that's, that's no longer fighting to please others, it's no longer fighting to please God, but living from a place that receives love. So we get to go and, and live as ones who are loved by the Lord himself. How about I, I sum this up with a, a few quick hitters at the end, right? Andy, you can hit that, that last slide. So how do we relate we get to live free and sin no more, all right? <clears throat> Not that one, the other one. Hey, there it is. Uh, we get to fight against our own sin first. If you think, well, what do I do with all this stuff? Before you're mindful of others, and there's a million places Jesus tells us the same thing, fight against your own sin first. Wage war with the sin inside of you. Secondly, we get to let your love from God and for others help you fight the sin with others. That's different than just going at someone as a watchdog, as a hyper-fundamentalist that's super judgmental, right? Jesus confronted that person, and look, they get a bad name in pop culture as well as they should. They should get a bad name in the church as well. Right? We don't get to do that. But, but when we're formed by love, we get to love others and offer grace and fight the sin of others alongside them. And lastly, you get to do your part to build a gospel-formed, gospel-sent community that is made, matured, and multiplied, and that makes, matures, and multiplies by the abounding grace of God. That's what we get to do. The man can come on up. We can respond today. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and sing. You can sit and sing. You can pray right where you are. You can pray by yourself at that prayer bench over there. You can pray with someone by that red tree. They would love to bear your burden no matter what it is. And if you find yourself today thinking, I've never known that God, but it sounds like he's for me in spite of me. I want to know him. Please go to the people at that red tree or find someone to talk to, we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to trust Jesus maybe for the first time in your life. For those who are in Christ today, those who, who trust Jesus to be all that we're not, we invite you to take communion. It's, it's dipping of the, the cracker into the cup and that represents for us the, the body that was broken, his body broken, his blood spilled. We are forgiven and free and so we get to remember and declare that, the good news. If you're not in Christ, that's not for you. But Jesus is, and we would love to have a conversation about that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, that we get to sit under it, 
day in, day out, week in, week out, that we get to be confronted and at the same time we get to be conformed by our good God. Would you let us find our rest in you? Would you let us find not the balance of how we relate to the world around us or the sin within us, but would, would we find a place that, that puts all of our peace and all of our hope and all of our joy in you and you alone? And would you let that lead us to the freedom and the fullness of life? In Jesus' name, amen.